you, sisters and brothers, loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. With this greeting, Paul began his letter to the Romans, which we have been considering for the last three weeks. As we begin here in chapter 8, we do well to quickly review how Paul has advanced his argument. For our purposes, it began in chapter 6 with the declaration that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. There followed three sermons with negative-sounding paradoxes that were, in fact, filled with the gospel. Chapter 6, verses 12 to 23, you, we were slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness, cooperating with the Spirit for the benefit of our neighbor and the glory of God. We started chapter 7, dead in Christ, that we might, quote, serve in the new way of the Spirit, verse 6. And then last week, Vicar Brinker, took, Vicar Brinker took us to Normandy, and a life lived in tension for even though we were raised with Christ, the old Adam still hangs around our neck. We are 100% saints, yet still 100% sinners. After three weeks of consecutive readings, our lectionary steps over the first 11 verses of chapter 8. Ours is not to question the lectionary committee, but you do need to hear two of those verses in order to ground today's text, starting at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh have set their minds in the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds in the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind in the flesh is death, but to set the mind in the spirit is life and peace. Close quote. Notice the contrast that Paul sets up between flesh on the one hand and spirit on the other. We set our minds on one or the other. It's an either-or proposition. To set our minds is so much more than to simply have an opinion about. It is one's active attitudes toward or outlook on literally all things. It is your worldview, either fleshly or spiritual. So we begin our text that neatly divides into thirds. The first third we may describe as the battle. Paul writes, Consequently then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. Debtors is, of course, financial language that Paul uses here in a figurative sense. It means one who is obligated to someone or something, here, to the flesh. When Paul speaks of flesh, or sarks in the Greek, as he will 13 times in chapter 8, he's not talking about skin and muscle. Sinews and tendons are physical bodies. Instead, flesh stands for corruption and mortality in the total person, and is a theological referent, not a physiological one not the material substance of the human person, but rather a way of living for human nature, as John Bombero summarizes it. Or listen to Paul himself in Galatians 5. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Our battle against the flesh raises an important issue that has plagued Christianity from the earliest days. Gnosticism. Wiki wants to call it, quote, a collection of ancient religious ideas and systems, close quote. It is a view that calls, calls physical things bad or corrupt. It holds that creation was a mistake. 
In this view, the human body consists of nothing more than a degenerate cage for souls. And herein lies our issue. That sounds very similar to the exasperated cry of Paul last week. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul doesn't hate his body. Neither did ancient Israel. God declares that everything he created was, what, very good. Paul himself writes to Timothy, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Yes, creation comes under his curse in chapter 3 of Genesis, and as a result we experience sin and death and must battle the flesh at every turn. But when God sent his Son to redeem embodied souls, you and I, he did it in a human body. Christ's great victory was won in the flesh, by the flesh, through the flesh that was born of Mary by the power of the Spirit. But let us return to that battle back in verses 12 and 13. When Paul declares that we are not debtors to the flesh, it still remains that we are debtors. There seems to be a parallel clause or sentence that got left out of our text. Verse 13 explains the devastating consequences of living according to the flesh. And then Paul moves on, never identifying to whom we are indebted. We could fill in that missing clause declaring that while we are not debtors to the flesh, we are debtors, obligated to live for God and for His Christ in accord with the Spirit. Verse 5. You are redeemed. Baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. Baptized into that tension that Vicar Brinker described last week. Paul writes in the positive side of verse 13, Life, but if life by the Spirit puts to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Life by the Spirit, life in the Spirit, is not an invitation to return to our fleshly existence. In a sermon on our text, Luther proclaimed, Sins are assuredly not forgiven in order that they should be committed, but in order that they should stop. It would, otherwise, it should more justly be called the permission of sins instead of the remission of sins. Life by the Spirit is a life in battle. Yet even in the midst of the battle, we know that the victory, the war, has already been won. The empty tomb shouts, You are free! For the law of the Spirit of life, verse 2, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit now leads us, as Paul declares, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Not natural sons and daughters, but adopted children of our Heavenly Father. That is the language that Paul uses in verse 15. A spirit of adoption, which he contrasts to the spirit of slavery, by which he means the slavery to the law. David Prince tells a story that captures the contrast of these two spirits when he writes, I know a family who adopted an older child from an unspeakably horrific orphanage in another country. When they brought her home, one of the things that they told her was that she was expected to clean her room every day. When she heard that responsibility, she fixated on it and saw it as a way that she would earn her way family's love. Every morning when her parents came in her room, it was immaculate. She would sit on her bed and say, my room is clean. Can I stay? Do you still love me? 
her words broke her new parents' hearts. Eventually, the girl learned to hear her parents' words as their unconditionally beloved child who would never be forsaken, not as a visitor trying to earn her place in the family. After she knew that she was an inseparable part of the family, part of the family story, even correction and discipline did not cause her to question her family's love for her. She understood that correction and discipline is part of what it meant to be in the family. The reformers read our text in the same light. Adoption, adoption into the family is a free gift. It's God's gift. It's God's election. Jacob Andrea expands on our text in the Formula of Conquer when he writes, For God's Spirit testifies to the elect that they are God's children, citing our text. Even when they fall into spiritual struggles so deep that they imagine that they no longer feel the power of the indwelling Spirit of God, and they say with David in the psalm, I said in my alarm, I am driven far from your sight. Nevertheless, apart from anything they find in themselves, they should say with David again, what immediately follows thereafter, but you heard my supplication when I cried to you for help. Why? Well, because you are God's adopted daughter, God's adopted son in Christ. And once in the Spirit, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. It is a remarkably intimate expression, approximately equivalent to our Daddy or Mommy. It is used by Paul twice, here and in Galatians 4. But to truly grasp its impact, we must go to the only other place in the Bible where we find it, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when we hear it on Jesus' lips. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You know the answer to the question. Because of my sin, because of your sin, there was no other option. But in his drinking that cup, in his blood that was spilt that day, your adoption papers were signed. No matter how often you sin, no matter how terrible your transgression may be, the ink is already dry that makes you, that makes us, Jesus' adopted brothers and sisters for all eternity. Abba, Father. I can talk about it. I can theologize about it. But David Slegley captures its meaning even better by analogy when he recalls, Recently, my 21-month-old, who had just learned to say, Daddy, had been struggling with asthma and an ear infection for two weeks. He coughed and sneezed continually, and his nose ran like a faucet. Each night when I came home, he ran to meet me at the door, smiling, coughing, nose running, yelling, Daddy, Daddy! I was not repulsed by his runny nose or close-range sneezes in the least. He slimed every shirt I owned. I love him deeply and enjoy his love for me. I'm reminded that though I'm sick with sin, God loves me deeply and desires that I run to him as a son crying, Abba, Father. There is the battle in verses 12 and 13 and the victory, Christ's victory that allows us to cry, Abba, Father, in verses 14 and 15. And finally in our reading, there is the prize. 
Paul writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. What is an inheritance? In our day, we think primarily of material property passed down from one generation to the next. The Bible also speaks this way. We recall the extensive Old Testament regulations regarding the land that was to remain in the family. But if lost, it was to be restored on the year of Jubilee. The parable of the prodigal only works because of this type of material inheritance. But the Bible also speaks of another inheritance, a blessing. Recall the story of Jacob and Esau. Not perhaps a shining moment in familial harmony. You recall how Rebekah and Jacob conspired to deceive the aged Isaac. Listen again to Esau's lament when the hoax is discovered. Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. But even in this affront to our sense of justice, we detect the hand of the Spirit. Years later, when Jacob, now Israel, is aged, and his eyes have grown as dim as those of his father, Joseph, his son, brings his grandsons to receive a blessing and inheritance. Joseph takes care to place them before his father, so that the firstborn is on his father's right. We read, But Israel stretched out his right hand and put it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn. Joseph objected, but it is the will of the Spirit, and so it remained. Paul says that we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. God crossed his hands at Gethsemane. When the curse for our sin fell on Jesus and the blessing of his perfect obedience fell on us, his right hand on your head declaring, you are my beloved. And for a time it remained that way until Easter morning when our brother by adoption rose victorious to claim the glory that was his from before creation. Like by the Spirit, it is a continual battle as we seek to put to death the deeds of the body that we might have life by the Spirit. But thanks be to God that Christ has won the victory for us and by the water of baptism converted to us. Now we enjoy the prize, the inheritance in part. When he comes again, we will enjoy it in full. Lord, preserve us by your Spirit until that day. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.